Hey there. It's that time of the week again. Welcome back to The Kicker. I'm your host, David Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review, and your media schwami. It's Thursday, June 22nd, and we're beaming into your earphones from the fifth floor of Pulitzer Hall. This week, I'll have CJR Managing Editor Vanessa Gazzari on to discuss a potentially cinematic scandal at the Wall Street Journal in which a foreign affairs correspondent cozied up with an Iranian-born arms dealer. I was planning to also talk to CGR's healthcare writer, Trudy Lieberman, about coverage of the American Healthcare Act, but unfortunately, yours truly is a novice podcast host, and I had a technical glitch while getting in touch with Trudy, so we will hopefully revisit that discussion next week when the Republicans are set to vote on a bill that has secretly advanced through the Senate. Joining me for a quick rundown of media stories we at CGR are watching this week are senior editor Christy Chisholm. Christy? Hello! And also a new Delacorte fellow at CGR, Meg Dalton. Hey. This is this is officially your CGR <laughs> hazing. Here. It is. I feel like I'm in a fraternity or a sorority or none of the above. Right. But we strive for. It's actually here the opposite of a fraternity. <laughs> yeah, no. it's yeah. so So let's do the news, Christy. What? are you watching this week? What are some of the news stories that we in the media should be cognizant of? So what I've been watching this week is what's happening with unionization in the digital sphere. And so Raw Story seems to be the latest in a string of digital outlets that is seeking unionization. It seems to be the hip new thing to do in digital media. It seems like all the young upstarts are realizing that they should have better protection uh, than they currently do at newsrooms. And so we had a story on the site this week by Gary Weiss that really goes into a deep dive in unions in the media sphere or the digital sphere. Right. I mean, hip might not be the perfect <laughs> word for this discussion. <laughs> but yeah, I know Raw Story is the latest in a string of digital outlets that have, have pushed to unionize. Others being Slate, The Intercept, The Huffington Post, Gawker, among others. DNA There's cer- Info. DNA and Info. Gothamist. They're certainly yeah. responding to a lot of pressures within the digital media workspace. So on the one hand, it is... Nice that a lot of these places are getting increased worker protections uh, in, in workplaces that oftentimes treat them very poorly, particularly very young employees treat them very poorly. On the other hand, it does speak to larger structural pressures within the media environment. Just last week, uh, the Huffington Post laid off 39 people from its newsroom. So those people did get severance packages and continuation of yeah. their health care. Some of the things that Gary calls out in his piece for CJR is that, you know, the, although unions are doing a few things to protect people. They're not prioritizing necessarily everything. Like, so seniority is something that seems to not be covered. It's a pretty traditional union protection. Exactly. And so, and I don't know whether that's because there are so many young people who are part of it. I would imagine that's part of it. Probably (laughs) something something to do with it. Meg, (laughs) you had an interesting discussion with Sam Sanders, who is a reporter from NPR. We've talked uh, in the past about how NPR, WNYC, and other sort of traditional radio outlets have tried to branch out more into podcasting to bring in new audiences. What did you talk to him about? What's going on with Sam? So Sam Sanders, you may remember him from the campaign trail in 2016. He you know, was the host of NPR Politics podcast, cultivated a huge following. And especially for NPR, it was a following that was young. And so most of the time in public radio, the audience tends to skew old white male. But Sam Sanders and NPR Politics and his new venture, which is called It's Been a Minute, are working to engage younger audiences um, and kind of cultivating a continuing base for NPR listeners in the future. Once we get that high school student or that college student or that young working person listening to us, to the NPR Politics podcast or this new show, once we let them know that it's okay to believe in NPR, we've got them. 
And before you know it, they'll listen to the radio and they'll check out our website. And then we've got them, right? And so, like, my goal is to make sure that this new show that I'm doing doesn't just speak to that core of listeners that have loved us and supported us forever, but to make sure that I can be that gateway for those new listeners and let them know, like, hey, you are welcome here. The hope is that, you know, the same crowd that listens to NPR Politics podcast will listen to It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders. And then once they listen to that show, they'll be hooked on NPR programming in general. It's like kind of the pathway in Give me more NPR. Give me more NPR. I need it. <laughs> I just want to breathe NPR. Um, and the other thing that we we talked about, too, uh, which, again, Sam is a very, I don't know if you've listened to him on NPR Politics, but he's a very energetic, dynamic, cheerful person. And the show is trying to focus on, hey, guys, it's not all dark and gloomy in the news today. Like, let's remember to celebrate. I live every day of my life not just following what politicians and celebrities are doing, but also like follow what my friends are doing. Why not have a show that tries in some way to mirror the way that we actually consume life? Like the way that we consume news and life is the high and the low and the big and the small and the serious and the non-serious like all together every day. So it sounds like a mix. He's trying to do hard news with also a soft packaging around it, which seems to be a departure from a lot of NPR. So it's certainly part of a larger push, as you said, of them trying to get younger folks to come via digitally focused audio platforms as opposed to more terrestrial radio, as they call it. He wants the show to mimic what you consume in your everyday life. So you just don't consume news. You consume information about family, friends. Stuff in your Facebook feed is not only an article from CGR, but it's, you know, your Aunt Betty having, giving birth to a baby or something. Oh, that's really interesting. You know? That's like definitely a very different format, it's I feel, than what you get in like any other news podcast. Moving on to our next segment. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal fired its chief foreign affairs correspondent, Jay Solomon, as news broke of evidence suggesting he may have tried doing business with an Iranian-born arms dealer. Joining me to unpack this crazy story and what it tells us about the dark underbelly of national security reporting is Vanessa Ghazari, a managing editor for CJR and a former foreign correspondent who's covered war, terrorism, and other topics. Vanessa, how's it going? Hey, Dave. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you on this. This is a, just a crazy story that I was trying to wrap my head around all day yesterday. So the Associated Press suggested that they had seen a number of correspondences between this reporter, Jay Solomon, and this Iranian-born arms dealer suggesting that they may have tried doing business at some point. Uh, this is a guy who has previously ferried weapons for the CIA, and he seems to be sort of a media figure within the intelligence and national security sort of spheres. The immediate reaction on Twitter was, this is a crazy story, cinematic drama. Here's this reporter who's sort of going to the dark side. He was co-opted by a source to do some shady business dealings. But you had a different take. You sort of tapped the brakes when we were talking about this earlier today. But what happened on Twitter was a great example of the kind of schadenfreude that often happens in these situations when somebody in media does something and, and gets smacked for it. And in this case, I mean, I, I completely understand the Wall Street Journal's decision to fire him, although I do wonder whether if this hadn't been so public that that is if if what he did hadn't been revealed by the Associated Press in a big story, I do wonder whether he would have been fired. There there are always people who want to say like this is the worst thing ever. 
we can't believe this guy did this. When I read the AP story, though, I found it to be quite measured in terms of what he had actually done. There is this one lunch where he is supposed to bring something to the UAE that is basically a a project proposal for uh, this shady company that he's, you know, allegedly part of. We don't know if he did that. We have an email from saying that he, you know, you know, congrats to him on his first defense deal from from um, Farhad Azima, this this shady character. We all wish best of luck to Jay on his first defense sale. Right. Um, which is like, you know, again, not an email that you ever want to get as a reporter. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you exactly. certainly don't. I mean, you know, I, have, I can personally say I've never gotten. <laughs> something my yeah, me again. neither. And, and I mean, a second only to ever getting an email like that would be having it published widely. That looks really bad. And then there's there's this email that or text that he sends saying our business opportunities are so exciting or something to that effect. Um, and I'll and I'll come back to that too. But I, I basically, I, I what I, what 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 struck me about this story is that in the world in which Jay Solomon was operating, I mean, he's a very high-level foreign affairs correspondent, security, national security correspondent. He has been working in a lot of countries in the Middle East and elsewhere. And, and, and in this work, you deal also with a lot of people who are in the intelligence community, whether it's in your country or somewhere else. So even in this company that he allegedly had a stake in or was going to have a stake in, apparently it looks like he never actually went through with it and the company fell apart and he didn't get any money from it. That's what the AP says. He's dealing with two former CIA guys as well as this shady arms dealer when you're in that world, I think that they're, you're dealing with people who themselves are in the business of, of cultivating sources. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, I'm trying to think through what happened here, because the first sort of most obvious thing that you could say is, well, Jay Solomon is just lying. He did this because he wanted to get involved with this company. He wanted to make a bunch of money. Something about that, I, I just don't buy it. I feel like he's not naive enough to do that. This guy, Azima, is is apparently a source to many reporters. Jay Solomon can't have thought that if he did get involved with this company, this would have gone unreported, I think. So that first possibility that he actually did just want to do this on the sly doesn't really make sense to me. So then the question is, like, what was what was he doing? And I think the closest I can come when I try to get inside his head to that is that he was maybe really trying to cultivate this source and see what it was like inside the setup of a company like this as a journalist. And he got too far and he stepped over the line right. in doing that. Right. Yeah. And Jay released a statement yesterday pretty soon after the story broke. He basically denied any business involvement with this individual. And he said he entered into a world I didn't fully understand. I understand why the emails and the conversations I had may look as if I were involved in some seriously troubling activities, and I apologize to my bosses. So that's certainly what his explanation is, that he was trying to cultivate a source, and he basically just went too far, and and he realized too late exactly what he was getting himself into. Yeah, I think reading between the lines, that's what he's trying to say. And and so, you know, you can believe him or not. One thing that makes me feel like his account has a little more credence is that the journal statement in some ways seems to echo it. I mean, they said he has not been forthcoming with us about his actions or his reporting practices, and he has forfeited our trust, which to me suggests that did he think he was going to go undercover and he just like didn't tell his editor, Hmm. which is, you know, also like tremendously poor judgment, you know, for somebody at that level 
So I don't know, but that that's certainly what it suggests to me. We talk a lot about source reporter relationships in the context of politics. You have you know reporters in Washington that oftentimes get too close with staffers and whatnot. Reporters in the tech community get close to people within Silicon Valley. But this seems like a completely different order of, as you said earlier, you're working with people within intelligence who might be essentially doing the same thing to you that you think that you're doing to them. You know, there's a sort of thing that happens when you're reporting on any beat that is is almost like a mimicry. You start to take on some of the qualities and characteristics of the people you're interviewing because you unconsciously because you're trying to build bonds with them. So I covered the military for a period of time. And when I would hang out with soldiers, I would probably talk differently from the way I might talk to you or the way I might talk, you know, to our colleagues at CJR or the way I talk to my family. And it's partly just an unconscious way of building a connection with people that reporters always want to try to build intimacy with their sources. But it's also it, it, it just happens like like it happens naturally. And I think when you're moving in this very shady world of former spooks or current spooks and arms dealers and um, people who are all mobbed up in Washington in various ways, there's there's like a kind of a slippage that happens because all the people around you are skating around mm. in, in the gray areas between um, that's where these people live right. in, in sort of a gray place. And I think a lot of, you know, intelligence officials and, and, and operatives and, and people who have worked in that world would say that. So, I mean, how would you think about sort of towing that line when you were reporting on some of these issues? I mean, obviously, obviously you know, if you're reporting on, say, a military unit, it's, I think it's a little bit different. Just you, you probably have a little bit more, you know, sympathy for the people who you're covering compared to an arms dealer, for example. But I'm just kind of curious when, how you thought about that, generally speaking. Yeah, I think, you you know, on one level, it's somebody like this looks pretty icky. So, you know, there's this idea that you'd be kind of re- repelled or you but I, I think that once you start building a relationship with someone as a source and I've you know, I got to say, I've interviewed all kinds of people, including like war criminals who have acknowledged killing lots of people and. You sort of think, like, how could you be in the room with this person? And it's true that after the interview, you might really want to take a shower, and, you know, you do. But in the space of the interview or the kind of the journalistic exchange, there is like a kind of a weird, almost like a quiet zone from all of that stuff, I think. I mean, I I think I've interviewed people who I would never hang out with. Right. And you have to, especially, I I mean, if you're covering conflict, you have to you have to email people, interview people, you know, are killers. And, And that's really, really difficult. I mean, anybody who's ever interviewed someone who's in prison for a crime you think they committed has had something of that experience. I just think that operating in this world and operating also sometimes far from your newsroom means that you can be a little bit unmoored from the daily practices of a newsroom. And and this is not to justify it at all, but I think that there can be times when your life is sort of in that culture and it becomes part of that culture. And so the norms that you're used to for reporting back home are different in in a different place. I mean, there are just different things that you do. I mean, for for example, when I was a young reporter here in the United States covering City Hall in Toledo, Ohio for The Blade, I was taught that you should never let one of your sources buy you a meal. Like, I was covering the mayor. I would never let the mayor take me out to dinner. That would be like a clear ethical lapse. 
In fact, you should never let anybody give you anything that's worth more than a keychain or a cup of coffee, even at a meeting or something. And then I went to Afghanistan, and I would go and meet people for an interview, and they would bring out this big lunch that they cooked or you know their servants cooked or their wives cooked. And you learn that you can't say no to that. You can't just not eat. It's like it's really, first of all, not good for the interview. And secondly, it's not good humanly. They don't they don't understand that they don't like it. That's sort of something that you have to adjust to. That's a very minor example, but it goes to something that I thought about a lot over there, which is that, you know, when it comes to ethical decisions, you're sort of on your own. You're making it up as you go along and you have to really trust your gut when you see something that that smells bad and and, you know, Certainly getting into a business deal with an arms dealer smells really bad and, you, you know, should never be done. But I, I do wonder whether he thought he could walk up to the line and still get out of this and maybe have something to say or some knowledge about how these things work that he didn't have before. Certainly. Uh, for what it's worth, I, I bet those Afghani lunches were pretty good. Amazing. <laughs> I miss it. There's nothing like that here. Right. Vanessa Kazari, thanks so much for breaking it down with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. That was our show. Thank you so much for kicking it with us. I want to give a special thanks to all of my guests from the CGR newsroom this week, Christy Chisholm, Meg Dalton, and Vanessa Gazzari. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, on Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a rating, comment, and share the show with your friends. You guys are what keep this program afloat. I really enjoy speaking to you all each week, so please keep any and all ideas for segments or guests coming. Thanks again for kicking it with us. I'll see you next week. 